am so pleased to be able to bring the message of the crucifixion to us again tonight. And as we continue in our study of the glorious theme of the gospel of God's grace as seen in the cross of Christ, I want us to focus our attention upon the positive theological implications of the cross. This morning, if you were with us, we dealt with the negative implications theologically of what our world would be like if Jesus Christ had not died. Tonight, I want to speak from the Bible as to what God's words are and the words He uses when He speaks to the issue of the cross of Christ. What is His perspective when it comes to describing the events surrounding the work of Christ at Calvary? And as I was preparing for tonight, and before we begin to define what some of these great, great theological words are, I want you to hear something from J.I. Packer that I think is very helpful when it comes to the use of these great words themselves that we find in the Bible referring to the cross. And I think it would be beneficial for us because it shows us how important God's words are and how we are to rightly understand and use them in our discourse with one another as Christians. Here's what he says. Keys open doors. Key words open minds. And through minds, hearts. The goal in defining God's words is understanding, faith, and wisdom. It is worth stopping here to note that our present-day Christian vocabulary contains two classes of words, those found in Scripture and those coined or borrowed since New Testament times. Class two words, Trinity, Incarnation, Person, Nature, Satisfaction, Aseity, Hierarchy, Transcendence, Omniscience, for example, should be seen as technical terms introduced as vocal shorthand to express particular biblical thoughts and therefore defined with precision at the outset. Some of them have lost their precision in our theologically wayward age, but they all had it once, and it is a good rule to use them only in their classical sense and to espouse them only if you can show that their classical meaning is just crystallized biblical thinking. Today, traditional theological language is slippery, and different people bend it different ways. One should not risk adding to the confusion. Would it not help, then, for us to think more biblically if we ditched all class two words and used biblical words only? Alas, the suggestion is specious, and the objections to it seem unanswerable. First, he says, the proposal is stultifying. It would rob us of clarity. No science, that is, no department of tested and digested knowledge, can do without technical terms. They are needed for precision of thought and speech. Without appropriate technical terms, communication would become unmanageably clumsy and progress in crystallizing truth would hardly be possible. This is as true in theology as in, say, astrophysics or ophthalmology. Second, the proposal is impoverishing. It would rob us of truth. Technical terms that have been well-defined and tested embody and transmit in capsule form much accurate knowledge and many correct decisions about matters that were once in debate. Thus, they act as a bulwark against error. The stage of church history is littered with the corpses of those who, having given up the technical terms Trinity and Incarnation, promptly fell into the errors that those words were defined to exclude. In any case, we cannot today use biblical words with just the meaning they had for biblical writers, neither more or less. Why not? Because they come to us loaded with associations and feeling tones which they have picked up during the Christian centuries and which cling to them like coats of paint that cannot be burned off. Thus, 
when we use biblical words like predestination, election, justification, perfect, sin, world, faith, grace, authority, devil, church, the associations in our minds which shape our interest and determine our questions are drawn from the world of post-biblical controversy, the world in which Augustine fought Pelagius and the Reformers fought Rome and the Calvinists fought the Arminians and the Conservatives fought the Liberals, each debating what the Bible as a whole really tells us about this or that. And in fact, the only worthwhile way for us to explore the themes which words like these designate is an explicit relation to our own latter-day questions and interests, asking how biblical thought and teaching touches them and how in general it engages with the lives of 20th century men and women. Anything less would be mere biblical antiquarianism, a solemn but ultimately trivial game. Our game must be to think biblically, not just about Bible writers' problems, but about our own. Very wise words. What he's saying is this. There is a movement today that says, look, we don't need all of these catchphrases. We don't need all of these terms that are bantered about. They're just confusing, confusing. They don't allow us to define what we really mean, and people define them differently anyway. So let's trash all of the technical terms that the church has used over the years, and let's just use the words that the Bible itself portrays. But Packer is right, of course, when he says, even then, even with biblical words, we need to define them. We need to understand them. We need to understand them as they were first laid out. We need to understand them even as they are understood in our own day, knowing that our own associations, that our own denominations, that our own understandings can change. We need to understand good, solid, biblical words in God's way in order to understand the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So let's do that tonight. Let's define some words. I don't necessarily want you to tune me out, to turn me off and say, look, this is just going to be a rote study, this is just going to be a word study. This is exciting. This is dynamic. Because what this interplay does for a pastor and his congregation is to communicate with each other that the Bible is important, that words matter, that what we mean by what we teach and what we define by what we believe is ultimately the bearing of our own eternal destiny. That's what these words are all about. Now, lest you think that I'm just simply going to go through a grocery list of terms, define them, and move on from there, I don't want to do that. I do, however, want to give you a list of words that mean something as it relates to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And then I want to give you the biblical definitions by way of going to actual passages for which you can write down and then look up either on your own or tonight and be able to have the confidence that the cross speaks relevantly to you today and that these words, not having magical or mystical meaning, but having solid, concrete, and foundational meaning for your Christian life. It's that important. You don't need to tune me out because these words make or break what you understand about the Bible and how you communicate that Bible to men and women. Let's look at a few of them. I mentioned this morning that there were several I wanted to look at. I've done you the service of combining a number of words that have shades of meaning but generally mean the same thing, so I won't be giving you all 20, but I'll certainly be giving you a bunch, maybe 13. Number one. Adoption. Adoption. When you talk about the cross of Christ, you must talk, and I do so in alphabetical order, about the theological concept of adoption. What is adoption? Well, adoption can be defined like this. It is, as defined in Scripture, God's declaration where once we were spiritually estranged from God Himself, as human beings we are far away from God, we have no relationship with God, we're estranged from Him, 
But because of the cross of Jesus Christ, God has brought us from a position of being estranged from Him to a position of being spiritually the sons and daughters of God. I would encourage you, if you will, to take out a pen and a scratch pad of paper and write down these definitions because I'm going to give them to you in such a small dose that you could write these down and even actually begin to memorize these things so that you can begin to speak in scriptural language and understand these biblical concepts. Would it not be the greatest joy and also the greatest vocation of the Christian to understand and define the words that define your own salvation and what has happened to you at the cross of Jesus Christ? This is the kind of vocabulary we ought to be involved with. And this is adoption. Adoption is the idea that God has given us an inheritance, an inheritance of all of the riches of divine glory. You may have read a passage or two that has talked about the idea that we have gained an inheritance. Well, that's all bound up in the idea of being adopted into God's family. It was really not a concept that was terribly pronounced as a concept in the Old Testament, although there is talk, of course, of being a son, a son of the king. Sonship was talked about. But in the New Testament, it comes to full bloom. And I want you to look in your Bibles to, to Romans chapter 8 for you to see these things. Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, in verse 14, it says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God... These are sons of God. Do you see the adoption language there? We had an estranged relationship to God. We were not His sons, spiritually speaking, even though, of course, as a race of people, we've all descended by the creativity of God. It is nonetheless true that because of Adam's sin, we have become estranged from God, spiritually speaking. We are no longer a part of His family until He brings us near, until He adopts us into His family by being led by the Spirit of God. That is, we are a part of the Spirit's work. He brings us into the body of Christ, and we become the sons of God. And then verse 15, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. What a great term. We can call God our dad. We can call him father. We can go to him as a son would go to his own father and we can say, Father, I need you. Father, I love you. Father, I've disappointed you. And he can respond to us, you are my son. That's a great term. And the cross is the only thing that brings us in to this adoption. If we didn't have the cross, we would have that estranged relationship with God forever, always experiencing the full fury of the wrath of God in a judgment in eternity because there would not be that sonship relationship. But as it is, God has brought us into the very adoption as sons. Galatians chapter 4, verse 5 also speaks of this. Listen to what it says. Galatians 4, 5 so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And then I love this. Therefore, verse 7, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We have an inheritance. Everything that Christ is to us is our inheritance. Everything that Christ has for us is ours as a result of being a son or daughter in the kingdom of God. That's the same language of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. Listen to what it says. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved One. We have the riches of His grace. He's lavished it upon us. And we will one day, according to verse 11, 
obtain an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. We have an inheritance according to verse 14 which is a pledge to the praise of his glory. We understand that. We understand what that means. We know what a an inheritance means and in our culture and in our language. We've become a son, and if we become a son, there is an inheritance to follow. And wouldn't you like to have the inheritance that Jesus Christ offers at the cross? If you come to Him in repentance and faith, the inheritance that you and I have is not an old beat-up Chevy. It's not a house that's more than 30 years old that will one day be yours but may not be worth much. It's an inheritance that is everything in Jesus Christ. And in him, the Bible says, is everything, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What a great, great theological concept. Secondly, he is our advocate, our advocate. What do we mean by this? Well, that means that, in fact, that word, that very word advocate, is the word parakletos. It's a translation of the Greek term meaning one who is called alongside. You know, it's used of the Holy Spirit in several places in the New Testament, but it's also used of Jesus Christ. Our advocate is the one who is called alongside us as our intercessor, pleading the merits of his own work on the cross on our behalf. What a great concept. You say, what is it succinctly stated? Our advocate is the one who is called alongside, pleading the merits of his own work for us. What an advocate. You know, an advocate normally is a person who comes alongside you, but you're the one who has done the work. He's the one only arguing on your behalf about the work you've done. It's someone who might say, look, I've labored and I've worked for this money, and someone has gypped me out of this money. Someone has stolen from me, and you grab an advocate, an attorney, and you bring this attorney with you, and this advocate, your co-counsel, comes and says about you, Judge, he is owed this money. He has been uh, stolen from. But the advocate that we have is Jesus Christ, and he doesn't come arguing our merits before God. He comes arguing his own merits on our behalf, and he is our advocate. Boy, what a great truth. You say, where is that in the Bible? 1 John 2, 1. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, and I want you just to write these per, uh, verses down and either read them along with me or save them for later. But listen to this, 1 John 2, 1, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate. You see that? Some of your marginal notes may be parakletos, one called alongside to help, or an intercessor. One who's pleading on my behalf. We have an advocate, one who's pleading for me with the Father, and his name is Jesus Christ the righteous. It even says in John chapter 14, verse 16, that Jesus is one day going to send a parakletos. He's going to one day send the Holy Spirit after he has ascended to the Father. But it also says in that very passage that I will be in you. I will be your parakletos. I will be the one called alongside to assist you. I will be your advocate. Great, great cross term. Number three, atonement. Atonement. Boy, that's a word that's commonly used but little understood, both inside and outside the church, it seems. Atonement, what does it mean? Well, I think basically it means a covering, a covering. You remember the Hebrew term that you might hear once a year, Yom Kippur. Kippur means atonement, Yom is day, the day of atonement. Kafar is another word. It's the idea, and even related to some of the New Testament words that we find, a covering, it's a satisfaction. It's God covering over our sin because he's been satisfied that divine justice has been meted out. It's a covering. It's the granting of forgiveness to the sinner. You remember that there was a scapegoat. There was a goat that was particularized out from the tribe of Israel, and that scapegoat was sort of labeled that way. And then they put that goat outside the city to, to 
to push him away so that he would never return as though my guilt guilt was being put on the back of that scapegoat and that scapegoat was being pushed out of the city to, to go into the wilderness never to return as though my guilt was being pushed away out of my life forever and ever. The idea of a covering, a satisfaction, that which God was doing for me was forgiving me of my sin. It's a covering over of my, my offenses with His mercy. In Leviticus chapter 1, verse 4 and in verse 16, there's the idea of the atonement. Some people like to say the at-one-ment, the idea that I'm uh, in a dynamic relationship with God. I'm at one with Him because He has covered my sins. He's forgiven me. We have a relationship now. And I love what is said in the New Testament in this regard. Hebrews chapter 9. Boy, when you go to the book of Hebrews and you look at some of these great words, you really begin to understand the flavor of the Old Testament. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26 The Bible says, He would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now once, at the consummation of the ages, He has been manifested to put away sin. You see that? That's an atonement. That's a covering. To put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. You know, it's not just anymore the idea of an Old Testament worshiper continually bringing the bull or the goat for a sacrifice year after year after year, and Hebrews 10 says, knowing that that would never actually, in an eternal sense, put away sin. Jesus Christ has put away sin because He's become our covering once and for all. Romans chapter 3 also speaks of this. This is probably the greatest New Testament passage which speaks of our atonement. Romans chapter 3, verse 25. It says, We are justified as a gift by His grace, verse 24, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. He covered And now He's giving us the opportunity to have a reconciliation, a covering, granting me mercy on the basis of what God has done in Christ. Oh, it's a a great idea. An atonement, a covering. I spoke a little bit this morning about the idea that everybody in the world really wants to know that there's an acceptance, there's a freedom, there's a forgiveness There's a relationship, and we have a relationship via the relationship between God and Christ, and our sins are forgiven if we know Christ. Our sins have been passed over. Our sins have been covered. It's like that scapegoat of my sin and your sin has been pushed as far out of the city as possible, and that goat goes to a place of wandering, never to return anymore. What a great, great comment about the cross and its positive implications. Number four, blood. Blood. Not much needs to be said about blood. You know about that because we sing about it, as Todd mentioned a moment ago, the blood of Christ. It's what is commonly called in theological terms a metonymy. It's a metonym. You know, some of those terms that you learned in school, like an antonym and a homonym, a metonym is a word that is similar to the word that you're referring to. It's sort of a word that you use by way of symbolism. When we, for instance, speak about the cross of Christ, we're speaking about what? The death of Christ. And when the Bible speaks about the blood of Christ, it's speaking about a metonym. It's the idea that you're speaking about a violent, sacrificial form of death. And how rich that is to us. Wouldn't it be so boring if all the Bible ever talked about was the death of Christ, the death of Christ, the death of Christ? It doesn't. It speaks in such flowery terms, such rich terms. It talks about the blood of Christ. It talks about the cross of Christ. It talks about the death of Christ. It talks about the the redemption of Christ. It talks about all of those things using those rich terms, and that's what that term blood is. Now, some of you might say, well, does that mean then that Blood is not really the issue. No, that's really the issue. Jesus had to die by shedding His blood. It wasn't just the idea that it was a symbol referring to sacrificial death as though blood wasn't important. 
You remember Leviticus 17, 11, Without the shedding of blood, there is no what? Remission or forgiveness. Without the actual shedding of the physical blood of Christ on that cross, there would have been no forgiveness. It was prophesied. It was foretold. It had to happen, and it had to happen in just that way. And when the Bible speaks of the idea of Jesus shedding His blood, it's not talking about some mystical, magical saving power in the blood itself, the platelets. It's not talking about the corpuscles. It's not talking about that. It's talking about the violent, sacrificial death that Jesus underwent on our behalf. It's talking about that, not the the blood that fell down on the ground as precious as that was because it came from Christ, but what it spoke to us regarding, what it did for us, and that was His death. His death was what secured our salvation. It wasn't just the blood that was flowing down physically on the cross. It was what Jesus Christ did in giving up His physical blood for us, for when He died, that was when our redemption was secured. I love the language of the Bible when it talks about these kinds of things. If you have your thumb in Romans, look at Romans chapter 5, verse 9, and you can see this metonymy, this idea of that which speaks of another. In Romans 5, 9, Paul says, much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. What do you mean by blood, Paul? What do you mean justified by His blood? Well, what he means is exactly what he says in verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Do you see the metonymy? Verse 9, blood. Verse 10, death. It's one thing referring to another. Blood refers to death. And probably my favorite passage that speaks of this metonymy in the whole New Testament is Colossians 1.20. I love this. Colossians 1.20. And through Him, that is through Christ, to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Now, if you really thought about that phrase, you'd ask yourself the question, Crosses don't bleed, do they? Well, what does that mean, the blood of His cross? That's just a rich way of talking about the death of Christ and the fact that His blood physically was spilt for you and me. And when that blood was oozing out of His body, it was the formation of the theological reality that we know as death, crucifixion. When He was crucified and when His head was bowed and when He said, it is finished, That meant that the blood of His cross, the death of Christ, had been made for us. That's what blood means. And then number five, cross. Cross. Or crucifixion. Someone came up to me this morning and asked a very, very good question. It was a younger person, about ten years old, and they said, you think it would be safe to say that the word cross is to be understood by Christians as the symbol, and crucifixion is to be understood by, by Christians as the actual physical implement upon which Christ died? And I said, who are you? <laughs> that's a theologian speaking there. I said, that, that's exactly what it is. The cross, again, is the symbol. It's the, the spiritual reality It probably was a cross of some sort. A cross in that time could have been on a pole even. Uh, It certainly had a crossbar, and it may have resembled the crosses that we've become familiar with, or it could have been a tree. It may have been a tree with branches flowing out for the place where the arms would go on the crossbar. But the reality is that cross for us means the spiritual reality of the death of Christ, and it was by, in physical terms, crucifixion. That's what it is. It's the act of execution upon a pole or a frame or scaffolding or a natural tree even. It represented one of the most cruel forms of death in the ancient world. And did you know that it had to be that way even for the person of Christ? Beloved, it wasn't just the idea that Jesus had to shed His blood, as I said a moment ago. He had to shed His his blood. And it wasn't just because He had to shed His blood on something other than a tree. No, it had to be a tree. You say, why? 
because Deuteronomy 21 says this explicitly. Deuteronomy 21, 23. His corpse shall not hang all night on a tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day, for he who is hanged is accursed of God. What do you mean? What I mean is this. God put Christ on the display of a cross on a tree, on a crucified tree, as a symbol that he was the accursed one. What I mean is this. God put Christ on the display of a cross on a tree, on a crucified tree, as a symbol that he was the accursed one. Because Galatians 3.13 says this, And cursed is every man who hangs upon a tree. That's the way God had it. God wanted to publicly display Jesus Christ as shedding His real, literal, physical blood as a violent giving up of His life for a sacrificial death and that upon an accursed tree. Now when you read your Bible and when you read Galatians 3.13, And when you read Deuteronomy 21, 23, you no longer have in your mind the idea of something that was so many years ago and doesn't really have any significance to me because in my culture I don't understand things in that way. You know now that it's speaking of the glorious reality that God publicly displayed Jesus Christ as the accursed one on a tree because it was an ignominious death for which Christ was to die. He wasn't going to die in some back room somewhere. He wasn't going to die at the brow of the hill when the angry mob was going to push him over. He wasn't going to die at the hands of angry men who were going to club him to death. No, he was going to die a public execution in one of the most cruel and insidious forms of human punishment at that time by the Romans, and that was crucifixion. Now, there are times when we sing hymns and we sing about the cross and we sing about the blood and Sometimes we may move somewhat into a a mystical venue and think about those things. But if you're thinking biblically, if you're thinking God's words after Him, you're thinking about the accursed tree and you have theological weight behind it. You understand that what it means is that God cursed Christ. God wanted Him hanging on that tree. He wanted Him hanging on that cross, letting out His blood and violent sacrificial death. Why? Because that's the way God wanted for us to know that that's what we deserved. We deserved to hang on that tree. Christ didn't. Christ never sinned. It was what we deserved. Number six, expiation. Expiation. Or you could put the word guilt. Or you could even write in the word propitiation. Or even write in the word satisfaction. And in that sense, I've just defined it for you. Expiation is the removal of guilt. It's the removal of guilt. And propitiation is the idea that God has been satisfied. And although there is at least some level of debate about exactly what expiation should mean, again, it probably has a lot of that which I spoke regarding the atonement, the idea of a covering over. It's the idea that God has removed or taken away the guilt of my sin. It's that His wrath against sin has been appeased. It's akin to that idea of propitiation, that God's wrath has been averted by the cross. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, this is the way Scripture speaks about it. Therefore... He had to be made, that is, Christ like His brethren in all things, so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, to make satisfaction, to make expiation, uh, to, to allow the guilt of my sin to be removed from me based upon the satisfaction that God said enough when Christ suffered and died. You remember in Romans 1, verse 18, verse 24, verse 26, verse 28, that continually speaks of the wrath of God. It talks about the wrath of God coming against the ungodly. The wrath of God, the wrath of God, the wrath of God. And it's speaking of that which is that full fury ultimately of the cataclysmic wrath of God when He comes against the entire world because of their sin against Him. 
And that is what's going to happen to the world. But for believers, that wrath has been kindled. That wrath has been removed. That guilt has been averted by the mercy of Jesus Christ on the cross. Don't you love that? 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 talks about that propitiation. That's probably where you knew I'd go. And He Himself is the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. God has been satisfied in His divine justice against the sin of sinners based upon what Christ did. And in chapter 4 of 1 John, verse 10, it says this, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now there might be someone who comes along and says, Now wait a minute. If we want to be relevant to our society, if we want to really be able to speak their language, we can't talk about propitiation because nobody knows what that means. Yes, they do. I've just told you. And when you know, you tell them. And when you tell them, you tell them that this is a great Christian word. And you tell them what it means. You tell them that God has removed or satisfied His own justice in the person of Jesus Christ because it's our sin that deserved all of that wrath and punishment. They'll understand that. You understand that. I understand that. There might even be other passages that you could go to, but enough for the idea of propitiation. I was a part of the Evangelical Theological Society meeting back in November with the staff. We had a great time, and one of the things I was so encouraged about was the fact that they released, or at least announced, the eventual release, and it's coming soon, of a new translation of the Bible. There was a revised standard version that came out a number of years ago, but it was owned as a copyright by the National Council of Churches, which is a very liberal organization, almost defunct now. And the Revised Standard Version, when it came out, was to the bane and to the disgust of so many evangelicals and conservatives because the very word propitiation and others like it were taken out because they didn't want those kinds of words in the Bible. And it wasn't just because they didn't think people could relate to them. It was because they didn't believe it. And I was so heartened to know that J.I. Packer and Wayne Grudem and a number of other scholars have now, by the great providence of God been able to snatch away the copyright to the Revised Standard Version, and now they're coming up with a brand new translation, updating that Revised Standard Version, and they're putting propitiation right back in there. And someone in the question and answer time raised their hand and said, yes, but does really anybody understand what propitiation is now? Wouldn't it be better if we just said, satisfied the wrath of God? J.I. Packer rightly said, probably because... He wrote what he wrote so many years ago. He said, I think propitiation does well because it's one word that communicates all that you just said. And he's right. Seventh, forgiveness. Forgiveness. Or you might use the idea of the remission of sins. What is it? Well, there's a Hebrew word, kafar, natsah, to bear, salah, to pardon. One of the Greek words that I love in the New Testament because it speaks of my own forgiveness of sins is the word aphiomi. And it means the idea of to pardon or to put away or again to cover over, uh, to not bring up something against someone. Not to be brought up against someone ever again. Do you know that that's what forgiveness means? Forgiveness means that when you grant someone the forgiveness that the Bible speaks of, you are obligating yourself never to bring it up to God or to that person or to anyone else ever again. In both the sense that you will not bring it up to use it against them or you will not bring it up to use it as a club or a sword against them or you will not in any way attempt to hurt them based upon their past transgressions. And aren't you glad that when the Bible speaks of aphiomi, the idea of forgiveness between ourselves and God, that God obligates Himself never to use our sins against us ever again. Don't you love it when the Bible speaks about God burying our sins in the depth of the sea, never to remember anymore? You say, well, how can God do that? He's omniscient. He remembers everything. He remembers everything because everything is present to Him. 
There's no past, present, and future. God knows everything. He knows everything we've done. He knows everything we are. He knows all of our sins. How can He not remember? Well, that's a euphemism in the Bible to speak of God not as though He had no knowledge, but God never using that ever against us. It's a penalty that has been forever taken away. It's not that God forgets as though He can't remember. It's as though God is saying, I'm going to bury those sins in the depth of the sea. Never. to use them against you anymore. You have those (coughs) pet sins in your life that you go to the Lord time and time again and you say to Him, Lord, I've done it again. Will you forgive me again? Will you grant me forgiveness again? Will you say... One more time, those words I want to hear, you're forgiven. I won't use it against you. I love what it says in Romans 3.25, God is putting aside or disregarding our sin. Hebrews 10.17 says it this way, Hebrews 10.17, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Ephesians 4.32 Be kind, forgiving of one another. It means putting away, disregarding, covering over, putting out, enduring, saying, I'm not going to use this against you. I'm committed not to bring this up against you. You know how in especially marriage relationships we often come to the place where we want to bring the sins of the other person up against them and we want to be able to use it. We want to be able to feast on it when ready. In the counseling cases that I've had, often I use the analogy of marital couples gunny sacking their sins against one another. You know that old term, gunny sacking? Where you would, I, you would have the idea, and my mother used to tell me with uh, cotton bags as well, it was very useful to be able to pull that bag over your shoulder and you would fill that cotton bag with all of those cotton balls. And when that thing became so large and so huge and so unmanageable, the only reasonable thing to do would be to take that bag and to go over to that place where all of that was stored and just take that entire bag and dump it out all at once. And you know, that's what we do with the sins of other people, especially our wife or our husband or someone we love. We'll think we're enduring something, we'll think we're putting up with something, and yet what we're doing is we're gunny stacking those things. We put those sins in that bag and we keep those bags ready at a moment's notice so that when we think we've come up to here with the relationship of that person all at once and for what appears to be no apparent reason and maybe for something that is so trivial, all of a sudden we dump the whole load. And your spouse or your friend or whoever it may be may be saying to themselves and to you, what did I do? Just for that? You mean you're saying all of this just because I said such and such and so and so? No, they've gunny-sacked it. And yet what forgiveness is according to God and according to the cross is that God doesn't gunny-sack our sins. He doesn't take all of those individual transgressions and all those nefarious sins and at one point when He's fed up with us, Dump the whole load. The Bible talks about forgiveness as though I'm never going to bring it up. I'm committed not to using your past sins against you. We know what they are, especially those pet sins that we deal with. We know what they are, and we don't want anybody using those against us, and we certainly don't want the Lord to do that, and the Lord is ever gracious. That's why you need to understand this Bible term, remission, forgiveness. Number eight, justice. Justice. We might even throw in the words justification, or the word righteous, or the word righteousness. All coming from the same word family. Justice 
I guess generically, might be the idea of the sense of rightness or wrongness that an act of a human being toward God could be. But in a technical sense, in a theological sense, it's the declaration by God that the sinner is credited with a not guilty verdict at the seat of divine justice based upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ being credited to their account. You said, could you tell me that again? By the tape. You, you know what justification is. We have learned justification in great ways here. Justification is the idea that God has declared you not guilty even though you are guilty. And He's declared Jesus Christ guilty even though He isn't guilty. I'd say that was a pretty fair exchange on our part, right? I'll take that. My justice is the justification of God based on the merits of Jesus Christ. Romans 4.25 is a verse you can attach to that idea of justification. Romans 4.25 He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification or for the blessing of our justification. I'm just in God's sight. Now I've heard some Christian try to define the idea of justification as this, just as if I'd never sinned. Well, that's a great thought. The only problem with it is it's wrong. Why? Because I did sin. And that's the key. It's not just as if I never sinned, because I did sin. It was a real atonement. It was a real justification. I really needed that rightness with God on the basis of Christ's righteousness because I did sin. It was as though... Just as if Christ had never sinned, He granted me something I didn't deserve. I did sin. That's why I needed that justification. Number nine, penalty. Penalty. Again, probably in a generic sense, just the natural or judicial consequences of sin for the believer. But from a Godward perspective, on the basis of what Christ did, what was Christ's penalty? Well, that's the cross. It was the forensic suffering Christ took upon Himself to satisfy divine justice. When you talk about penalty in a theological sense, you talk about Christ taking on Himself the penalty that was due our sins by us, ourselves. It's what Christ took on for us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the greatest section in all of the Bible regarding the penalty and the reconciliation that Christ underwent for us. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, and here's what it is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. And then that great statement, verse 21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, who pair, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The penalty? Death. Death, why? Because of sin. Christ didn't have that. But He died in our place, on our behalf. He didn't know any sin, but He became sin. It wasn't that Christ became a sinner. It was Christ became sin. That's a big difference. And He became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Ransom, number 10. Ransom. And boy, when you talk about ransom, you're really talking about a great positive theological implication of the cross. What does it mean? It's the price paid by Christ. That's all. The, the price paid by Christ. His provision of dying for sinners. You say, what was that ransom? Peter tells us what it is. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. You know it well. Knowing that you were not redeemed, you were not ransomed, with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless the blood of Christ. You were ransomed. 
The price that was paid on your behalf was the precious blood, the Lamb unblemished and spotless, Jesus Christ. That's what is really the issue that is happening in Isaiah 52.3. Isaiah 52.3, it's, of course, so near and dear to my heart and for Dr. Zemek as well. Isaiah chapter 52 Verse 3, For thus says the Lord, You were sold for nothing, and you will be redeemed without money. It goes on, of course, in chapter 53 to talk about the idea that we have been redeemed, ransomed, brought back from the slave market of sin by the fact of the precious blood of Jesus Christ, spotless, blameless Lamb. And then next to last, reconciliation. Reconciliation. We might toss around terms in the church for which people would say, yeah, but what does that mean? What does that really mean? It's just a theological word. Well, reconciliation means that we were once hostile to God and He's brought us into a a relationship of friendship. That's what it means. We're reconciled. It's the removal of hostility between ourselves and God. God has reconciled us. God has brought us into a place of friendship and not hostility. Romans 5.10, through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, been brought into a place of friendship, not a place of hostility. You remember what James says? Friendship with the world is what? Hostility with God. The converse is also true. If I'm a friend of God, I'm going to be hostile to the world. And if I'm hostile to the world, God is my friend. And then sanctification or holiness. Maybe that's 12, that's next to last. What is sanctification? You say, was Christ sanctified? Yes. In what way? He was set apart. We talk about holiness in our own life, and that's true. That's what we need to talk about. We need to become more holy. That's sanctification, yes. But when Christ was said to be sanctified in John 17, for instance, it's talking about the idea that He was set apart by God to do a task. Sanctification was any place or person or object or occasion that was set apart to God. And in the case of Christ, it was His special service that He rendered unto God the Father by going to that cross and by dying there. He was sanctified. He was set apart. It was a special occasion for Christ to do His holy work. John 17, 19. That's why 1 Corinthians 1, 30, Paul can say this, Jesus Christ is sanctification. He is sanctification. It doesn't mean that Christ was a sinner and He had to become more holy like us. It meant that Christ was set apart to a noble task and God set Him, set him apart for that work and He completed that work and He's now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He's holy. And then lastly, substitution. Boy, what a place to end. Substitution. What is it? The penal suffering of Christ. We know that term, penal. Someone who goes to a penal colony. Someone who's being punished. Someone who has to spend time in jail. Someone who has to have a a suffering, a punishment, a verdict. It's the penal suffering of Christ. He was the one who was suffering in place of, on behalf of. Yes, every time you read in your Bible those words that come out in your English Bible, on behalf of, or in the place of, or in the stead of, or for, or so that He might redeem us. That purpose clause, those words mean great theological weight. It's not just something that you read and you pass by. It's what Christ has done for us. Luke 22, verses 19 and 20. Romans 5, verses 6 to 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. And 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God. He would bring us to God and say, Father, I'm their advocate. I'm their mediator. 
1 Timothy 2. I'm the one who is arguing their case before your divine bench. What an attorney on your behalf. And he says, they have nothing to offer you. They have no merit on their own. They have nothing for which they could gain great standing before your throne. Only this, I died for them. I substituted my own life for theirs, the just for the unjust, in order that I might bring them to you, Father. And of course, as you know, the Bible says, if you come to Christ, He will in no wise cast you out. And if He's not going to cast you out, neither, neither is God the Father. In 47 minutes, I've given you 13 terms that describe the positive implications of the cross of Jesus Christ. What a, what a great time tonight. Don't go away from here thinking just a bunch of terms, just a bunch of Bible verses spoken by a guy who's speaking 65 miles an hour. No, not that at all. I want you, when you pillow your head tonight, to ask yourself the question, do I love these terms and what they convey? Because what they speak of is my Christ. What they speak of is my Savior. What they speak of is my Lord, the one who has died for me. Do I know Him? Do I love Him? Do I serve Him? Do I obey Him? You remember in the Gospel accounts where Jesus said to some of those who were following behind, and He turned to them and said, Why call me Lord, Lord? and do not do the things that I say. All of us can be in the church for years and years and not be coming to a place of either understanding these great theological terms or appreciating them as they relate to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, but not tonight, not tonight. These terms mean everything to us because they signal for us the very salvation for which we enjoy. Let's pray together. Father, tonight is a great night. Today is a great day. Because if we do not come to a place of understanding these terms, defining them, gaining wisdom about them, looking these passages up, finding out what our own salvation looks like, knowing that even the angels long to look into the things that speak of our salvation. Where is our interest? Where is our love? Where is our motivation to learn and to listen and to grow in these things? Just as Peter says, growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, we want to learn and we want to grow in the knowledge of all of these things. Lord, thank you for bringing each and every person. Thank you for them. Thank you for their dedication, their willingness, their commitment to come. To be challenged by understanding these terms. Some of them difficult as they may seem. Some of them unfamiliar. But all of them no less important. And no less relevant to each and every one of us every day of our lives. Lord, may we learn these terms with greater depth than I could have possibly given tonight. And we, may we be changed by them, not the words themselves as though they're magical, but by the content behind them, by the verses which speak of our dear Jesus Himself and what He did for us on that cross. Lord, I pray even for each one here, that they would know Christ and that if they don't know Him, that they would say to themselves, even now, I want that redemption. I, I want that sacrifice. I, I want that satisfaction. I don't have it. I want it. I need it. Christ, come to me. Save me. Be my Lord, so that I might do what you say. Lord, bring us back next Lord's Day 
and bring them back as well. New creatures in Christ. Like little birds with our beaks open, ready to receive the nourishment that you provide through your holy book. And may we, as we come back, even next week, prepare our hearts to receive the truth, even about the physical implications of the death of Christ and what our dear Savior went through, both physically and mentally. May we prepare our hearts even for the reception of those things. In Jesus' name, amen.